Uh, hey, everybody. This is an old episode from a podcast that uh, Bill and I uh, used to do, but um, we kind of ditched that and uh, I'm switching everything over to this podcast. So uh, this is us talking about the movie Barton Fink by the Coen brothers, and it's from our old um, podcast we had that we called uh, the 11th Street Telegram. So um, it's from a few years ago, so enjoy. And um, if you like what you're listening to and have any comments or whatever, um, send me an email at mpls.podcast at gmail.com. That's like Minneapolis shortened to mpls.podcast podcasts at gmail.com. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Mainline coil. Artificial line coil. New armature lever. Separate batteries, supplementaries. All new contrivances. It's the 11th Street Telegram, your premier anachronistic news and entertainment program. Coming to you from the offices of the 11th Street Telegraph Agency. Mlazanov then will speak in high voice. Keep speaking on in your low voice while Mlazanov at the same time speaks highly. This From is Dutlitz's Both <clears throat> messages at the same me, time type from the same office at different at voices and recorded elsewhere by instruments with appropriate sensitivities. It's another episode of the 11th Street Telegram. I'm your host, Peter. And I'm your other host, Bill. Um, Bill, 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 the life of the mind. Yeah. Professor Bill. Right, right. And Peter, the common man. The common man. (laughs) Yeah. Today, as you can probably guess, we're talking about Barton Fink. Coen Brothers, the fourth movie in the Coen Brothers uh, cat- catalog. catalog. Oh, God. Don't mm-hmm. just say it again, even though I hate it. The, say it the again. oeuvre. Oh, God. I hate that. Yeah. Uh, um, so, you know, we should uh, say, okay, Barton Fink came out in 1991. And that was the third year of The Simpsons, the second or third year of The Simpsons. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's something like The that, Simpsons yeah. at that time is widely considered to have been good. I mean, you know, people who are Simpsons fans will tell you that back in those days is when the show was really good. So what do you think that joke meant in 1991? Okay. On The Simpsons, how are people going to perceive Barton Fink? What kind of joke is that? 
Oh, I, I, in my mind, the joke is that the, you know, the joke is like, here's a bunch of kids going to sneak into an R rated movie, which, you know, they classify the reason, the reason teenage boys or whatever age they're supposed to be boys sneak into an R rated movie is to see sex and violence, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like, or horror or whatever, but, but, you know, even horror movies, if you're that age and, and they're screaming Barton Fink like that, like right, what they they they're like in for a raucous good time, you know. And the joke right. is that here's this plodding, weird R-rated cerebral movie, right? That, you know, yeah, not not so, a uh, not a movie that kids at that time would have wanted to see. No, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. So, I think that's what does Barton think things. about? What do you th- is is that what you think it means? No, what does Barton think about? Oh, I agree with you, but what? I agree with your interpretation of that joke in The Simpsons. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, Barton Fink. Barton Fink is about. We're gonna do the synopsis. Let's do it. The um, the synopsis of Barton Fink is uh, Barton. Think is a screenwriter uh, or a playwright in New York, and he wrote a hit play that sort of seemed like something similar to Death of a Salesman. Um, it was a play about the everyman, sort of. Um, I'm not sure, they didn't go into details, but it won him lots of accolades. Hollywood studio hears about it, and this is in the 1940s when they're just cranking out movies. And um, they they hire they they tell Barton's um, uh, agent that they want to hire him and put him on a salary. So he moves out to Los Angeles, gets a room in a crappy hotel, and he is told he's supposed to write a wrestling picture for Wallace Beery. And um, the movie is about him having writer's block, trying to write the movie failing um he meets john goodman who is a uh weird guy um overly friendly and throughout the course of the movie you you it's revealed that um uh john goodman's character is actually some sort of serial killer and yeah a whole bunch of other stuff happens but that that's basically the gist of the movie that's the gist right. of it. Yeah, that's the gist of it. Yeah. Um, where did it rank among your estimation of Coen Brothers films before this most recent rewatching of it? Oh, you know, I'm not sure where in the ranking it was. It was what did we do? Top three or did we do top five before? We, we named our top three. Okay, yeah, it definitely wasn't in my top three um, before this before this viewing. I think... Definitely top half of their mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so up, upon watching it again, it definitely moved up for me. It moved up maybe two or three slots. May, eh, maybe just two slots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it ha- it's, not, it's not now in the top three. But it might be like, it might be four or five. 
Oh, okay. Wow, it's, that's pretty. It's high. right outside. It's right outside the top three, I think. Yeah, for me, I think it was certainly top half. I went into this viewing wondering if perhaps it was going to sneak into the top three, or at least maybe pass Miller's Crossing or take Miller's Crossing's place. Uh, it did not. I don't believe it Where, surpassed where's Miller's, Miller's Crossing. Crossing? Miller's Crossing is top five for me. Um, mm. I still, I really enjoyed it, and I didn't. Um, I guess partly because upon watching, upon rewatching Miller's Crossing last time, Miller's Crossing was even better than I remembered. Mm-hmm. I don't think Barton Fink was even better than I remembered. It was about as good as mm. I remember it being. It didn't change its position, um, but it was still very good. I think it was it was definitely better. Obviously, for me, that's why it moved up. Um, yeah, it was better. Yeah. Um, and do you remember when you when did you watch it last? When when did you like first? The last it? time I saw Barton Fink was at least probably about five years ago. Or maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, probably about five years ago. Yeah. And how did you happen to watch it? Like, I got the, the DVD. I think I got it? the DVD from Netflix. I think it was back in the day of actual discs coming from Netflix. And and so you're like, it. you're so you're a Coen Brothers fan. You were trying to be a completist. And you're like, oh, they made this Barton Fink movie. I hear it's good. I should watch it. Is that, is yes. that sort of how you came across it? Yeah. Yes. It yeah, was I not. Think, I, I, by the time I watched it, by the time I watched Barton Fink, I was already a huge Coen Brothers fan, and I was trying to watch more of their movies that I hadn't seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, for me, I definitely was a Coen Brothers fan, and I'm trying to remember. I might have just picked it up at a blockbuster. To be honest mm. with you, that's been the like, story for a lot of your Coen Brothers <laughs> viewings. Is you've been yeah. getting them from Blockbuster. Yeah. Yeah, that was back in the days of waiting tables, mm-hmm. um, taking too long to finish my undergrad degree, mm. and and uh, Blockbuster was right next door to the Olive Garden that I worked at, and I right. occasionally I'd wander over and and get movies. Nice. Um, yeah. So it was either that, but then I also I'm not sure when I got this pack, but like this DVD pack that I have, it has um, it has. Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, Ra- Raising Arizona, Barton Fink, and Fargo. It kind of hops nice. up to Fargo. Um, the late 80s, early 90s Colin collection. Yeah, minus Hudsucker Proxy. Minus Hudsucker Proxy, that's true. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, so I, I saw it then, and I think I probably just watched it by myself because I, none of my friends would want to watch that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, it's been, so I saw it one time and then I saw it again when I got this pack. And again, that was probably like, probably same amount of time as you, maybe five years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe less three years ago. Uh, and yeah, and now this time, um, it was really good. It was really good. Uh, before you want to do you should we do before we start to tackle some of the things in it? Do we want to, do we want to do a little trivia thing? Yeah, this is a new installment. A trivia installment. Trivia installment. Gee, Bill, can you... This is radio, man. You gotta sell it. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a trivia it. installment! I'm really excited about it. God. You know, now that <laughs> seems too forced. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
All right, you go. Well, well, well I think uh, it, what, what I think you that you might be disappointed by my trivia questions. They maybe are like not what you were th- not what you had in mind. Oh God! We'll see. We'll, well see. Let's try it out. Okay. Let's hear it. So, All right. And for our listeners at home, feel free to pause the recording and ponder your 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 uh, your own answers. Yeah. Okay. okay. So I've got a, I've got two multiple choice questions. All right. All right. So, during the 1930s and 1940s, the federal government funded a lot of theatrical productions in New York and elsewhere. And the reason I ask this question is because I believe Barton Fink's play at the beginning is strongly implied to be among this type of theater that was government funded. Okay. Okay. The title of this government program was A, the Works Progress Administration, B, the National Recovery Administration, C, the National Endowment for the Arts, or D, the Civilian Conservation Corps? Uh, the first one. That's right. The WPA. A. That was strongly, it was pe- commonly people it's would refer up. to WPA theater, and theatrical productions would advertise that they were part of the WPA theater uh, on their playbills and their posters and so forth. And even though the movie doesn't specifically state this, um, I think it's sort of strongly implied that Barton's play at the beginning of the movie is is one of these is one of these federally funded plays. Yeah, man, part of I, the new, I remember part that of from... the New Deal. Where th- this this sausage is getting made all over this recording. The sausage is <laughs> spilling onto the keyboard and into the microphone. Because. <laughs> uh... The the telegraph waves, the lines are getting crossed. I think um, there's some outages. Yeah, I don't know. In the wire, I think we need the Wichita linemen. Ooh, that's a good name for a band. Write that one down. Uh, um, yeah, I can't remember. I, I remember definitely remember reading about that some point in high school, which is oh, weird because I good. normally don't have. I normally do not have a good memory for little bits of information like that, but. Somehow I did it. All right. Cool. Sweet. You going to hit me with another one? You do yours, and then I I got one after that. All right. All right. How many movies for which William Faulkner was one of or the sole screenwriters were produced? So how many William Faulkner movies are there? A, zero. B, four. C, Nine or D fifteen? Huh. Uh, I I know it's not zero. I I know he wrote he helped write at least some movies. Fifteen it seems high, and so does nine. So I'm gonna say four. You were very close. It was nine. Oh wow! Nine movies, and he had probably about a dozen additional screenplays that were never uh, made. And apparently, if you are a William Faulkner scholar, you can go to certain libraries and they hold his unproduced screenplays. Oh, wow. Yeah. But on the Wikipedia page for William Faulkner, it has the titles of the screenplays, but I cannot tell if any one of them is a wrestling picture or not. (laughs) So, and so that implies that, that, that you think, um, uh, w. P. Mayhew is is uh, William Faulkner. It's supposed to be 
referencing William Faulkner. I think that's fairly uh, certain. Have you seen, yeah. if, you, if you go to the Wikipedia page for William Faulkner, the photograph they use for him looks exactly like W.P. Mayhew in, uh, in Barton Fink. Although I think it should oh, also wow. be said that William Faulkner in his time in Hollywood was probably less dysfunctional than W.P. Mayhew. And apparently he didn't have as much disdain for Hollywood as W.P. Mayhew in Barton Fink. Okay. W.P. Mayhew is the alcoholic southerner novelist that is also sort of on retainer for one of the movie studios that Barton meets. And he's played by John Mahoney. Most people remember him as Frazier's dad. Frazier's dad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's funny because I, I primarily knew him as Frazier's dad. And then I see him in this movie and, it, you know, it's, it's pretty risque for Frazier's dad. It's pretty what? You know, risque, risque, risky, yeah. but with a Q-U-E at the end. Makes you sound high class. Oh, man, Bill. Some, I'm sorry, ah. it's the sausage. The sausage intruded ah. upon your joke. <laughs> Makes you sound high class. Uber. No, this, the, well, the sausage, the sausage stepped on your line. This is, man, we're going to have to... We're gonna have to fix this sausage maker. Um, yeah, I, I liked I liked his performance a lot. Um, John Mahoney's performance a lot. In yeah, it. he was great in it. God, that that first the the scene where Barton goes into the bathroom mm. and and he's kneeling on this little on this little like like handkerchief, puking his guts out. You know, mm -hmm. and then just sort of steps out and acts like nothing happened, and says, "Oh, excuse right. the smell." Um, do you, uh, my assumption in that scene is that they're implying he's bulimic, right? Or is it I, supposed to be tied to his drinking? I think it's just his drinking. That's what I think. It, it may again? be the first. I think it's just his drinking. It may be that he's supposed oh, to be bulimic, okay. but I think it's just the drinking. I think he was just drunk, day drunk. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense. Makes more sense. One of the things that I'll say, I mean, we'll come we'll probably circle back around to this, but one of the things that struck me so much upon this um viewing of Barton Fink is the first view we have of the characters is tremendous. The first shot we have of Barton Fink is he's standing backstage um at his play and clutching the program in the most nervous and neurotic fashion, you know, and he's watching from the wings. And I think that yeah. so much is conveyed about his character just in that, that shot. And then the first time we see John Goodman's character, he's leaning on Barton's doorframe in the Hotel Earl, and he's got this sinister look on his face. And the first shot of him with that sinister look turns out that was the more honest representation of that character. He was actually a sinister and horrible person. So that first mm -hmm. impression we get is more of the honest impression, even though the movie makes you think for about an hour that maybe he is actually kind of just a normal good guy. I don't know. I think the first time I saw Barton Fink, I eventually allowed myself to be convinced that, no, he's fine. He's just a normal, nice guy that happens to live next door. That's what I thought. 
And then third, mm -hmm. the introduction of W.P. Mayhew, the first thing you see about him is the shoes he's wearing. He's wearing those white, fancy shoes while he's puking his guts out in a public restroom. I just felt that that right there also conveyed so much about the character in a really interesting fashion. It, yeah, it's true. It, I, yeah, I agree with all that, too. And, and the, even that, that opening shot uh, with Barton Fink, I was watching it and thinking, you know, a lesser director would not have this shot be the beginning of the movie. No. Like, it's a play. He, the, a lesser director would, would be showing the play. And then they right. would move back into the into the audience. Uh, I mean, not I'm sorry, into the backstage. Um, mm -hmm. But here, you don't even get a you don't even get like a full on shot of the stage. You just you see the rafters at first, right? I think that's what you see at first with the yep. with the pulleys going up and down. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and. Um, yeah, so uh, I I just love that first shot, and I agree with you about the characters too. They, that's something that that they definitely refined over over their career. Um, you know, with Big Lebowski, like that the first shot you see of the dude is so defining for that character when he's in the um, grocery store drinking half and half out of right. the carton. You know, yep, <laughs> like. And, and I mean, on and on, it, it goes on and on from there. Like, uh, the, you know, first shot you see of Jesus, um, the, you know, the competing, uh, bowling mm -hmm. player. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, and, uh, well, so this, this, this movie is interesting too, because I think, so John Turturro was in, he was in um, Miller's Crossing, obviously. He right. wasn't in Blood Simple. I don't remember him in Raising Arizona, right? No. So this is the second appearance of John Turturro. Right. And I think this is the, the Coen Brothers movie where he has the most to do, for sure. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, not... Uh, well, yeah, maybe so. I mean, he was in he was in No Brother Where Art Thou and had a lot to do. This with is the only too. one where he's the main character, right? Yeah, but he yeah. plays very critical side characters in two of their other movies and a very colorful and memorable side character in The Big Lebowski. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, oh, let me do that. That will sort of segue into the 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 little trivia game that I have. Gotcha. You ready? Yep, I'm ready. Play it, and um, for all of our listeners and readers at home, feel free to send in your answers um, through postage, mm -hmm. and you might get something. Oh, right? you might. I don't know. Find our find our address somehow, and yeah, if you just... can find, if you can send me the answers somehow finding mm -hmm. our address, then you'll win something. Yeah, you might. Yeah. Yeah, it's possible. Yep, okay. it, is, it is possible. This, this is a game I like to call John, John, or Steve. Mm. Okay? John, mm -hmm, John, mm -hmm. or Steve. Right. So what I'm going to do 
is I'm going to name a character. I'm going to name the name of a character that either John Goodman, John Turturro, or Steve Buscemi played in a movie, and you have to say if it's John, John, or Steve. Okay. Ready? Yep. And these are not from... They, they, this is not only limited to Coen Brothers movies. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, like, if I said... If I said... Um, um, Walter Sobchak. That's John Goodman. John, right. Yeah. So that's, that's how you play the game. All right. Okay, so first one. First name. Ing, Ingegner Lombelli. Ingegner Lombelli. I'm going to say John Turturro. <laughs> did, did you hear that? Yes. <laughs> My dog is snoring. And he's, <laughs> he's dreaming. He's dreaming right dreaming now. Dreaming about chasing yeah. webbits. Something. Um, and, and that noise of him dreaming about chasing rabbit, rabbits is the... Um, that's a correct. That's a correct answer. John Turturro. For extra points, do you want to guess what movie it's from? I think that's from the movie The Cradle Will Rock. <laughs> you are very wrong. Um, no, partly no. cloudy with sunny spells. Partly cloudy, Partly cloudy with sunny spells. With, yeah, huh. with sunny spells. I don't know. All right. I guessed The Creator Will Rock because in that movie he plays an Italian playwright, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I just figured that. Um, all right, next one. Uh, Bill Blago. Bill Blago. Or Blago, maybe. I'm going to guess that's Steve Buscemi. Man, right again. Steve Buscemi from Rampart, from the movie Rampart. Um, Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell? Howard Cosell. Yep. I'm going to guess that Steve Buscemi must have played Howard Cosell at some point. It's a good guess, but that's wrong. John oh. Turturro. John, what movie did John Turturro play Howard Cosell in? Made for TV movie called Monday Night. Monday Night Mayhem from 2002. Huh. That is a weird casting. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, okay. Um, um, Roland Turner. John Goodman. Yep. Any guesses on the movie? I don't know. Flight. Inside Lewin Davis. Inside Lewin Davis. Very good. Yep. Yep. Um, I only got a couple more. Let's see. Uh, George Twisp. George Twisp. George Twisp. That sounds like a Steve Buscemi name. Yep. Correct. Youth in Revolt. Youth, Youth in, Revolt. in Revolt. I didn't see that. Um, I didn't either, but I heard good things about it. Okay. Nebercracker. All one word. Nebercracker. Steve Buscemi. Again. And care to guess the movie or type of movie? I don't know. Monster mm -hmm. House. 
monster house. So, huh? What's in, I think what's interesting is that is is these these actors are really really good actors, and then, and then they make these movies that are just sort of like some are some are outright bad movies. Mm-hmm. Some are just outright bad. Well, John okay, Turturro was in Transformers. You are leading me into what I was just going to yeah. say. Is yeah. this true or false? Are there more than one of these people on that list that have been in Transformers movies? Or is John Turturro the only one? I got none of that. Too much sausage. Sausage was all over Too the... Much. All over the yeah. Oh. Is... The question is... How many of the those three actors have been in Transformers movies? Two of them, uh, John Turturro and maybe Steve Buscemi popped into one at some point. Uh, wait, let me do a little fact checking before I say yes. Hang on, hang on one second. Uh. Okay, yeah, wrong. Wrong. Ooh. All the correct answer is two, oh. but it's John Goodman who plays the voice of the Transformer Hound in the latest one. Who oh, In the geez. latest one, which, which John Turturro is not in. <laughs> Damn. So, That's yeah. That's a terrible these, choice. Uh, so, yeah, why would... Uh, I mean, voice acting. I guess when you're when you're a famous actor, you know, doesn't require a lot of work. You go in and you know, sign yeah. up, do your thing, and leave. Yeah, that's All crazy, right. man. That's our little trivia segment. Very cool. Um. But yeah. Uh. So, but this is the first movie that that the three of these guys were in together. Um, with in a Coen Brothers movie, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the the follow up is is Big Lebowski, um, where all three of them again are in that movie. I Steve Buscemi's not in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah, movie. yeah, that's true. Um, Part of the Coen's general sort of team. Yeah, the. Uh, Man, and Steve Buscemi's part in in this movie, it was small, but it was pretty memorable. The oh yeah, the scene he he's the bellhop. Right. Chet, Chet, my name is Chet, and he writes it down, Chet. and then he writes it on a piece of paper with an exclamation point, and just slides it <laughs> yeah. across the the table to him. Yeah, yeah, and the you know when I was watching this movie, uh, we had talked about how they they wrote this movie at the same time that they wrote Miller's Crossing. Right. And they were suffering from writer's block in, in writing Miller's Crossing. So they put that on pause. I think they wrote Barton Fink here in the Twin Cities. I think that's where oh. they took some time off, came over here. Um, or maybe it was Miller's Crossing. I'm getting the, the facts confused. But um, yeah, so the fact that they're writing a movie about somebody trying to write a movie and having writer's block... Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty meta. It's pretty meta you know? indeed. Um, 
and also th- th- what I thought of was um, I watched the this little documentary about the making of The Shining and the parallels between between the two aren't aren't like a lot or anything but um they're both movies that are about guys in hotels with writer's block who happen to you know have all these murderous consequences Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and that's not that's not the these aren't the only two stories about that either like um stephen king all he writes about are authors having trouble writing things right and murder happening to them um there was that johnny depp movie that they made that was basically about mm. the same thing um but uh but yeah i just uh, the 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 concept of the the th- there was something going on in that hotel um maybe i'm jumping around too much but that hotel was that was a metaphor i think for for barton's brain you know the um i was watching this movie and trying to think like is this movie doing the thing where um anything that happens inside that hotel is only happening inside of Barton's brain. Oh, because, I Because you know what I mean like uh, the he interacts with his agents and things outside of there, but they never they never reference the murders that are happening or like he's got he's got a box but you never find out what's in the box. So, right. you know, it could be that that this hotel and this um everything that's happening inside of that hotel um and i guess to a certain degree maybe to a certain degree um how he's interacting with mayhew and stuff but i i think it's only the hotel where um this is just what he's going through in his writing process right you know so um that makes a lot of sense to me and i like that better than than a similar interpretation which is that from the moment he goes to bed with Audrey. Mm-hmm. Everything after that is a dream. Mm. But I like the your interpretation better. I like your interpretation that nothing that happens inside the hotel is real. That yeah, it's all just his inner turmoil, and you yes. can see yeah. everything happen that happens outside of the hotel as it makes sense even as a man who's just flustered and anxious and suffering from writer's block. You don't have to interpret his behavior outside of the hotel as someone who's literally seen a murder and literally had a dead body to deal with. It could just be that he's a flustered, anxious, neurotic man suffering from writer's block. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah, and he's, you know, like, um, I don't know if you've ever had a job like this, but I've definitely had jobs where... I get into it and then I'm assigned a project that I I have no idea where to start, you know, and like, mm-hmm. and it's the deadline is coming up and I'm not, and because I procrastinate, like I'm afraid to admit to my boss or whoever that I procrastinated and I needed some help or, or maybe I do ask for help and then the help just isn't there. So I, I mean, I can definitely relate to that level of anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, this this movie too. What we were talking about before with the Coen Brothers movies is like this isn't this isn't I this is definitely not one of the ones uh, one of their movies that will appeal to everybody. You know, like 
This is not a representation of reality. There's things that happen in this movie, even outside of the hotel. Right. People act in contradictory ways. Like uh -huh. um, the boss, the uh, I forget the character's name, the, the blustery boss who at the end of the movie becomes a, a general in the army. You know, well, puts on that puts on a uniform anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he freaks out on um, uh, what's what's the actor's name? He freaks out on the guy who was in Miller's Crossing. He freaks out on John Polito. Yeah, yeah, John Polito. Yeah, he um, so and he tells John Polito's character, you know, you're fired. Kiss his feet or you're fired, and he doesn't do it. Um, and it's like, that's it, you're fired, you're fired. And then the next scene that you see, he's there and it's fine. And <laughs> he's still working there, obviously. Like, right, that's like, true. Th there's, there's, th there's things about the movie that I think somebody, I think if you're not, uh, uh, we've talked about this before, you got to like buy into the, the Coen Brothers way of doing things or like the, the Coen Brothers tone, you know? Right. Like that wasn't a misstep. That's not a misstep on their part to have that guy still there. Like, that fits with that boss's character. He's, he's this crazy man who flies off the handle and probably comes crawling back to the guy. Or not crawling right. back, but he probably is just like, you thought that was true? You're not fired. Come back to work. Yeah. You know, I need you. Yeah. What are you doing? Why aren't you here? Right. Well, it, 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 that is all very much in keeping with one of the general things about the Coen brothers, which I like which is that their movies are completely comfortable with unresolved ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of things that happen in the Coen brothers in various Coen brothers movies. This one, especially um, I would say that uh, no country for old men, especially and a serious man, especially those three in particular where there's ambiguous things and anybody who tries to, read the movie very, very carefully to figure out what was really intended is barking up the wrong tree because there's deliberate, unresolved ambiguity, you know? Mm -hmm. And the Coen brothers themselves, when they're asked about these things in interviews, they'd kind of go, eh, I don't know. We just kind of put that in there, <laughs> you know? And mm -hmm. I like that because even if they didn't mean anything by it, you can still have the fun conversation about it, right? It's, it's sort of the conversation about how a piece of art exists beyond the author. Like what the author intends at a certain point is no longer important because the art is mm -hmm. out there and the art sort of stands on its own and you can talk about it and read into it if you want to. And uh, I think that they are deliberately doing that. I think they're deliberately putting things into this movie that don't make, that you cannot quote unquote figure out what it really means. They're just mm -hmm. there to be puzzles. That's their point. They're, the, the point is to be ambiguous, um, which I really appreciate. You know, I, I, I like that in movies. Um, and this movie has a lot of it, <laughs> which I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, I agree. And, and something that you said reminds me of this quote that I remember reading about Raymond Chandler. There, there's one of, his, one of his novels that he wrote there, there's some there. There's a bunch of threads left hanging at the end, and like the the main mystery is solved. Like they figure out who kills the guy or whatever. But um, somebody asked Raymond Chandler about this missing thread, 
and um, and he basically said the same thing, like, eh, well, you know, that's that's Butler's for you, or you know, something something along those lines. And I know that they're big fans of Raymond Chandler. It just makes me it makes me wonder if I wonder if both of their writing processes are similar. Like, mm-hmm. it seems to be that the Coen brothers and Raymond Chandler both are more concerned with with um, laying out this weird scene of like how people communicate and interact with each other and mm-hmm. the unease and like and like just strangeness that comes from that right and and sort of the plot is there to move to move you into those situations right yes. it's not it doesn't exist is vice versa really right um, i mean uh but uh but yeah yeah so i wonder if they approach it that way like i wonder if they write okay, you know what's really funny is if we take this character and that character and put them in a scene together. <laughs> Good old dog. <laughs> I don't dog. know what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. He's, he's, he's making chasing, noise. Chasing um, wabbits in his dream. He's not sleeping, though. He's huh? just looking at me. Um, yeah, I wonder if they put them together and then they, they have all of these scenes and then, you know, sort of see how the chips lie. A little noisy outside. Oh crap! Um, right now, but yeah, yeah. The sausage uh, is overflowing. This movie for me, what I really liked about this movie is we saw hints of this in Miller's Crossing, but um, not to the degree I think that Barton Fink accomplished it. Like Miller's Crossing showed that they could make these, they could take these caricatures, these characters that were that are sort of existing in movies that go back to the thirties and forties, right? Like here's you, you've seen this, this cop, um, uh, stereotype before. Here's the cop. Here's like the, the Irish cop. Here's like the gangster, you know, and we're going to make these guys like caricatures of those types. But at the, and, and it'll be sort of funny but then all of a sudden you're going to have the this these like acts of brutal violence in there and yeah. sort of profound seriousness mm-hmm. and and you're like oh like that 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 interaction is what i really like um yeah it, just that that weird combination and barton fink does that i think even better than miller's crossing um mm. where it's it's like John Goodman's character is is like a caricature of that of that um, sweaty, good natured salesman guy. Um, John Good or John Turturro is like a caricature of a of a, a cerebral Jewish playwright, you know. Mm-hmm. And and they're both sort of funny in the way that they interact with stuff. But then, you know, seeing the it, like the brutal scene of him waking up with that woman just bleeding all over the place like right oh god yep um i i i feel like they nail it's like for me this was the first movie where it's like yes that is that is a type of a coen brothers thing and nobody else can do that mm-hmm. as well as they yep. can yep. You know? i agree with you completely on that yeah. yeah and you know another another theme that i want to bring up again because we talked about it on our first episode which is that a lot of the coen brothers movies deal with the defeat of the American left in the 20th century. Hmm, okay. Um, this was an idea I got from this Twitter commentator guy. He's like a 
he's a sort of a newspaper columnist in Canada. His name is Jeet here, and he did a number of tweets about how a lot of the Coen Brothers movies have the defeat of the left. Because here's Barton Fink, and he represents this basically like left-wing socialist playwright who claims to be doing everything for the common man, and the common man is what he's really interested in. But in fact, he has no interest in the common man because he is living right next to one in the hotel. And John Goodman repeatedly tries to tell him that he has his stories he could tell him. And Barton Fink is like, oh, I'm sure you do. That's what I'm really looking after. But he's not interested in listening to the stories. And that's what, right. that's what um, John Goodman says to him at the end. He's like, you don't listen. And I think that what the Coen brothers were doing here is trying to, is like making a parody of this kind of... Um, left-wing academic that claims to be speaking for the people but is in fact just completely clueless (laughs) yeah yeah i you know i took that to mean something really a lot more internal because i'm I'm picturing i'm picturing them trying to write this other movie you know and and then sort of just like barton fink was a way for them to to get all of this negative negative thoughts about themselves out, you know, mm-hmm. like like they're both two Jewish guys who are trying to write a movie, and you know, it's like, oh yeah, here let's let's put out the worst version of ourselves in Barton Fink, you know, this mm-hmm. like hand wringing oh, Jewish guy, and 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 if we go with the metaphor of you know, the, everything that happens in the hotel. And John Goodman only exists in that hotel. Like, right. He's not outside of the hotel ever. And the two detectives so, that come in, they only meet with Barton in the hotel. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it's like maybe they're struggling with, like that's that represents the part of their brain that for whatever reason they have to use this like evil shit to... to have occurred to allow them to write things, you know, because it wasn't mm-hmm. until, it wasn't until, um, uh, John Goodman killed the love interest, right? Like John Kildman, John Goodman kills the love interest, chops her head off, puts it in the box. I mean, we're assuming that that's what it is. Right. I'm, I'm assuming that that's her head in that box. Right. And it's not until, this terrible act happens and his presence leaves, but he's got the box on the desk that finally Barton can, okay, now we can start writing, you know? And then he cranks out, then he cranks it out um, and and writes this thing that he considers to be a masterpiece. Right. Which is funny because then. (laughs) But I think it's completely not. I I think we're meant to think it's just another piece of his same shit because Yeah. It ends with the exact same line that his play ended with. Oh right, yeah, that's true. Yeah. We're gonna you're gonna be hearing from them soon, and I don't mean a postcard, you know. Right. And right. when you see him, one of the things, one of the little moments I really liked was the beginning of the movie. Um, he's trying to write the beginning of the script, and he writes, "It is dawn at a Lower East Side tenement in New York City." The sound of traffic is visible. As, this, excuse me. The sound of traffic is audible. As is. And then Charlie Meadows interrupts him and he has this entire um, interaction with Charlie Meadows in which he meets him for the first time. And then what we see him, when later we return to a close-up shot of the typewriter and what, he, what we see he has written was, as is, 
the cry of the fishmongers. Well, his right. play in New York City was about a fishmonger. So it's clear <laughs> right. that he has like no ideas. He has way fewer ideas than he thinks he does. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think oh. I I think I I totally think your interpretation about Barton Fink as a way to exercise their own bad writing habits like as a way of curing themselves of whatever is giving themselves writer's block. I think mm -hmm. that interpretation totally works and makes a lot of sense. Uh, I also mm -hmm. think that Barton Fink is like a stereotype of the um, effete left-wing intellectual that considers yeah. himself to be in touch with the people but is really completely naive. Yeah, 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 I agree. <clears throat> um, the... Man, there's some other little things I wanted to be sure I mentioned about the movie that I liked. I think they they use they did this in Miller's Crossing, but they use um, I guess it's called diegetic sound, where you know the the sound is happening in the movie, like it's it's happening in the scene. It's not it's not a soundtrack or something. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure I'm using that word correctly, but the like the the buzzing of the like the buzzing of the the mosquito in his room um when he's talking to the that blustery movie producer and the guy slams his hand on the on the desk you right. hear the saucer but you don't mm -hmm. see it you know um, right i thought all like they used they they knew how to do that and they use and that's a device that that is commonly really used in um in horror movies because it amps up the suspense, you know, mm -hmm. like long pauses, no sound really. And you can hear something happening, but you don't see it. And, yep. um, so they use these horror movie things in a movie. That's really not a horror movie. Um, I mean, it kind of, you know, it's got elements, but, uh, man, I thought that was really good. It's and the then, closest thing to a horror movie that they've done. I think, uh, it, maybe. I mean, Blood Simple. Well, maybe, maybe No Country for Old Men, and yeah, I suppose Blood Simple's sort of as well. Uh, we're are you there? We're the, the that Wichita line is getting to us, man. Yeah, the, it is. It is. Um, um, I gotta. I think it's my. I think it's my connection here. I'm gonna have to do some work on the lines over on this end. Yeah. Well, you know, call the lineman in. Um, yeah. That's right. The diegetic yeah. sound. And I know. I know that. Uh, um, oh, brother. Excuse, not oh, brother. Where art thou? I know that. Um, no country for old men is the same way. There's only diegetic sound in, in No Country for Old Men. There's no music in the entire movie, except. For the mariachi band that is playing near t near Llewellyn Moss when he wakes up on the Mexican side of the border after being um, wounded. Right, right. The, what's interesting too is about that is, and we'll get to it when we talk about Big Lebowski. But as far as I can remember, every piece of music that happens in that movie is occurring within the scene, also. So like the dream sequence, the movie that the, the, the music that they're playing is happening because it's on his tape recorder. Oh, okay. That, and like he gets, he gets knocked out and he's listening to Bob Dylan and then that Bob Dylan song plays. Um, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. anyway, I, we could, I don't want to go into it too much, but we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll mention it when we get there. 
Um, One thing I want to look for oh, the, is oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the the other thing that that I thought made me think more about that hotel as as Barton's brain, you know, mm -hmm. um, is the uh, Charlie keeps talking about. I can hear all of this stuff happening through the pipes. I can hear all this stuff happening through the pipes, you know. Mm, um, right. And when um, when he's having when Barton is having sex with with uh, WP's uh, mistress, Audrey. Audrey yeah, they um, they immediately go into the bathroom and hover over the sink and then go into the sink. Right. Um, you know, to emphasize the fact that like. You can hear all this stuff happening, right? Um, and and that for me, I made the connection of this weird stuff is happening in the pipes, and Charlie's ear is draining all the time with pus, and mm. um, the the wallpaper, everything is about the wallpaper in that picture, you know, and the wallpaper peeling back with that with that stuff that could either be like, <laughs> you know. It could either be semen or pus or, mm -hmm. or wallpaper glue, you know? Right. Like, it's, it, it just looks so disgusting. Totally. Um, and then the sounds you hear when he, when Barton calls to complain about Charlie, you can't tell if, if you can't tell what Charlie's doing. Like that could be laughter. That could be crying. He could be like, you don't know what's going on in there. That's um, true. Then even, even when you're hearing the people having sex, like the the next door neighbors having sex, it's like, yeah, I guess that could be sex, but it could also be like two people just sobbing, you know? Like it doesn't sound, that is not clear at all what's going on there. So, yeah. Anyway, all of that is, it, yeah, all of that just ties back into the, this, this hotel thing is, probably probably doesn't actually exist and is probably just just all his his head yeah that makes sense um i think that's a good interpretation of it i really like it i think that uh it's one of those things where the coen brothers would never like tell us if that was correct or not right but yeah. uh but um I think it works really well. One thing that I noticed in this movie that I want to sort of check for again in the future is um, really grotesque old women. And what I mean is, <laughs> what I mean is, um, the the producer character uh, played by Tony Shalhoub, his secretary is this absolutely grotesque <laughs> woman. That and she's shot in a way to like really emphasize the grotesqueness, you know. She has these yeah. huge jowls and this horrible skin, and I, you know, I think they're definitely they're definitely playing it up for grotesqueness. And I thought yeah. in a in a serious man, the secretary of the of the final rabbi, similarly, is this grotesque old woman that has this extremely deep voice. So, okay, so right. that's something to keep an eye out for in other Coen Brothers movies. Grotesque old women. <laughs> Grotesque, overweight you, old women. Right. And, and you know what? That, that was, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that brought to mind the other thing 
each time they showed that secretary, I think they show two secretaries in the movie, mm-hmm. and both times, they the the shot starts with the typewriter. So right. for a moment, for a moment, you think, "Oh, good, good for you, Barton. You're finally writing something. Like, look at you. You're cranking something out with such speed. You know, right? And but it's just and then the they pull back and. No, it's just the secretary. Right. And that, that again, I think, is, is just ties into this whole, like, writer's block thing. Right. Like, look, you think you're this great writer. Let's be real. The people who are doing all of this writing, mm-hmm. look who's doing the writing. Like, this grotesque old woman. Right. <laughs> She's right, cranking right, right. stuff out and has no qualms about it. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, do you want to... Well, any any other thoughts, or should we should we just jump to the well, ratings? One other thought that I was thinking of that I've that that has been brought to my attention is I think the Coen Brothers, um, their movies are definitely movies about men. I mean, uh-huh. with the ex- with the one notable exception of Fargo, these are very very male centric movies, and not to say that women are objectified in the movie, but the movies have definite a sort of a definite male gaze. They tend to be about yeah. problems and obsessions and conundrums that we associate with men's problems and men's conundrums and men's obsessions. Um, mm-hmm. So that's also, I think, one thing I want to kind of keep an eye on as we move forward is looking for the female characters that have a full-fledged life of their own rather than just um, the way that they relate to a man. And there's not as many that, of them. Yeah. There's not that many of them, except I think Marge Gunderson being the very notable exception. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it, it, and, and maybe one of the reasons why they they don't get dinged for it too much is because I think to a large degree they're they're kind of, um, for lack of a better word, like self-hating about about white males Mm. so while the movie is about uh it's a like going down the list that fargo might be the only one that has the starring character be you know the the main character be a woman Um, and blood simple to a degree but right you don't get a whole lot of her character and also also um true grit Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But those are the, you know, it's it, clearly those are the exceptions rather than sort of the general trend. Yeah, the and the males in I think all of their movies, like while the while the movie is about and probably stars for the most part uh, a white guy in these situations, it's really showing how sort of terrible these like it's not this isn't right. like a hero worship type of thing no, like all right. of these characters are right. super flawed it's about and, it's about and, the sort of downsides of white male culture and 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 <laughs> like ineffectual white males or neurotic white males <laughs> right. you know there's no celebration right. of white male masculinity or white male uh, virtue <laughs> no no and and in a lot of cases when when um that stuff does come up it's it's buffoonery like right. um you know or in, villainy uh, in true grit yeah right. like jeff bridges is kind of a badass in a way but he's like he's 
he was sleeping in a what was he sleeping on like a bag of potatoes or something yes <laughs> and also and, also the scene and, in true grit when he and matt damon are like sort of basically dick measuring by who can shoot the biscuits out of the air better and they can, they're basically just wasting their biscuits <laughs> right right yeah and the 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 fight in the big lebowski when when it's like all right here we go this is like this is like the ultimate showdown right. of of the the nihilists and and Walter <laughs> and it's like they, it's and one of the nihilists is just going you know, I fuck you I fuck you I fuck you it's like like the a lesser director would would take those scenes and be like whoa this is yeah here's where the action happens let's really right. give it to him right <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. just it just sort of fizzles um. Yeah. Well. All right. All right. Well, should we get? Should we give it a rating? Let's rate. Let's rate in it. Let's do it. All right. Oh, I'm gonna give wait, it. Wait, Phil. Uh, do we have any sponsors? Do we have any sponsors? Um. Do we have any sponsors today? We are sponsored today by <clears throat> Best Choice Golden Butter Potatoes. Oh. Yeah. Well, are they really the best choice? Well, you know what? I'm glad you asked that question because simply saying something is the best choice, that's not enough information. I can't just trust that. But you know, if you look here, it says, in addition to best choice, it says U.S. number one. So lay your fears aside. Uh, It is, in fact, the best choice because if it's the U.S. number one, that clearly means it's the best choice. I wonder if um, I wonder if Jeff Bridges was laying on best choice potatoes. He probably was. They've got some of Jeff Bridges' butt sweat in them. That's how you know that they're. That's how number one. Jeff Bridges is. All right. <laughs> go out and buy some best choice number one potatoes. All right then. Go. So I would right. give. So go ahead. What would be your rating? Mine. Um, okay. So just to review the rating structure mm-hmm. again. We got at going from least to best. Right. We got uh, Walter's Walter Sobchak's undies, mm-hmm. the whites. Um, then next, you know what? I have to reference. I have to reference the. What's next? The Mentaculus. We got the Mentaculus. Then mm-hmm. the ice scraper. Right. And then the, the Mechana Dapper number Dan. Number four is Dapper Dan. And, and uh, five is the dude's rug, the pinnacle, right. the, the, so this is really tough for me mm-hmm. because it is, for me, it's either, it's either Dapper Dan or dude's rug. Yeah. Um, really, really tough. Maybe Dapper, maybe, wait, did I give, did I give the same rating to Miller's Crossing? Did I give dude's rug? With a little bit of Dapper Dan on it for Miller's Crossing. I did Crossing. that. I know. I that, I know that's what I gave Miller's Crossing. Oh, yeah. Man, could the the one thing the one thing I I think about this movie is I think it could have been a little bit tighter. So it's mostly dudes rug, but I'm gonna go Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan. I'm gonna go Dapper Dan as well. Yeah. 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 What do you think it could have done better? Um, 
Hmm. That's tough. I can't think of I, I can't think of a specific criticism. Um I think maybe what holds it back for me is maybe something that's a little bit unfair. It's held back by the lack of a truly sympathetic character. I think that it's hard to identify with Barton because I think Barton is kind of Oh man. Not admirable. I should not have and he doesn't even really camera. have an admirable foil. So this is a subjective objection. Um, and I wish I could come up to something more objective. But I think that's what keeps me from having the same delight in viewing it as I do in some of their other movies. Okay. Uh -oh. Yeah, okay. I caught, I caught most of that, but right. uh, the line gave up. It'll, I'll have to... I'll, I'll have to learn what you said in post-production. Okay, well, I'll, I'll have to yeah, do that I, for a couple of things you said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think it just could have... There was, there was parts where it just seemed a little too long. Like, it could have just been a little bit tighter. Mm -hmm. And I think... Yeah, I um, agree. Just, but that, that's totally subjective, too. You know? Yeah. Because it, it's a movie that needs to stretch in certain places. You, you mm -hmm. need... You need it to not be tight in certain places. Right. Um, but yeah. Cool. cool. So I think what is next? Hudsucker Proxy is next? Yeah, Hudsucker Proxy is next. And I think I'm going to have to stick to my... We're going to have to experiment with a slightly different format next time. Because Hudsucker Proxy is the one Coen Brothers movie I haven't seen. And it's the one Coen Brothers movie that I'm keeping on reserve for when they died. And even after they're dead, I'll have still have one new Coen Brothers movie to see. So, nice. So, so next, next week, you'll have, well, it'll be sort of have to be more like an interview, someone who hasn't seen the film talking to someone who has seen the film. Right. Sounds good. All right. All right. Until then. Until next stay, time. Yep. Stay by your apparatus.